This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page, and I hope you'll connect with me either place. Today, I am interviewing Signe Pike. Signe was born in Ithaca, New York, and graduated from Cornell University with her Bachelor of Science in Communication. She worked as an acquisitions editor at Random House and then at Penguin before leaving to write her first book, Fairy Tale, One Woman's Search for Enchantment in a Modern World. Pike has spent the past 10 years researching and writing about Celtic history, myth, folklore, and tradition. Her love of history, the great outdoors, early medieval and ancient archaeology, and her dedication to historical accuracy has made her social media feeds an informative delight to her readers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I enjoyed interviewing Signe. Welcome, Signe. I'm so excited to talk with you today about the Forgotten Kingdom. How are you? I'm just great. It's good to be here. So tell me all about the Forgotten Kingdom. So the Forgotten Kingdom is the second book in a trilogy based around a real historical queen who lived in 6th century Scotland who has since been lost to modern memory. Her name is Langorith of Cadzow. And Langorith had a really interesting life. We can trace some of the actual events that happened in her lifetime through things like old chronicles and biographies of saints. But one of the most interesting things probably about Langorith just on the surface is that she had a twin brother whose name was Lilacan who some people now think was the historical figure who inspired the legend of Merlin in the Arthurian saga. So my books really seek to unearth the real people behind the legend. They're not fantasy, they're historical fiction, and I'm trying to piece together the actual events of the man, Lilacan, and his sister, Langorith, who would have been one of the most powerful queens in the early medieval times. And of course, today you can walk around Glasgow where she's from and hardly anyone's ever heard of her. Well, that was one of my first questions when I was reading was, how did you come across her? How did you learn about her and then become interested enough to write about her? I was in a little bookshop in Glastonbury, England, and I picked up a book by a gentleman called Adam Ardry, and it was called Finding Merlin. And it was a nonfiction book about how he believed that Merlin was a man named Lilacan, was a Scot, not a British man, not as many people believe, but was was Scottish and lived actually almost a century later than most people believe Merlin lived. As I started reading this book, I came across Langorith and I picked up the book and bought it and that began this decade-long journey into the lives of, of these twins. And tell me about your research. You mentioned a little bit where you found some portions of their lives, but what what all did you have to find? I mean, that's a long time ago. Trying to get a hold of things from that era, I would assume, could be difficult. Oh, it's an extremely difficult time period to research. It requires a great deal of patience, which I've had had to work with. But you start with the sort of the oldest pieces that you can gather, which is usually things like ancient poems that date from the 6th century. There's one called Egadothan. There's some poems that are attributed to Merlin, which have been heavily tampered with by Christian scholars over time. But those have some really interesting little tidbits that you can tease out. And there are language scholars who have picked apart the poems and can tell people which lines they think are the most archaic, which I think is always really fascinating. 
and which ones have been added in as sort of propaganda used by kings and scribes in future centuries. So that's really a cool thing is to study the poetry. And then the one thing I do too, is I go to the sites. Once we know where these people lived, you can actually still visit a lot of these ancient hill forts and you can read about the archeology span and the artifacts that have been found. A lot of the artifacts, um, some of them you can even still go see in museums. But the interesting thing about the sixth century is that not a lot was written. It was still largely an oral tradition. So you've got to sort of rely on things that were written a few centuries later and tease out the facts for yourself, which can be frustrating and also can be somewhat freeing. I was just going to say, it could be also liberating because you're not completely tied to a record that exists and that everybody can go and say, wait a minute, she didn't follow this exactly. Exactly. You know, one of the things that's really funny is that I think people tend to really see, now we call it the early medieval period or the early historic period, but, you know, this was the time known when I was learning history in school as the Dark Ages. And it surprises me how many readers still really underestimate the level of invention and technology that was available to sixth century people. Um, They had mills, they had padlocks, they had tweezers, they had needles, they had all kinds of things. I believe they had whiskey. I'm a whiskey fanatic, so it's a point of contention with some readers, but that's what I believe. I mean, we've been distilling alcohol since the times of ancient Egypt. I think that they absolutely had whiskey in 6th century Scotland for sure. Although the the main drink was obviously imported wine and beer and mead. What language were most of the things written in? Do you have to translate it? How does that work? Well, I'm not, I don't, I've never taken any Latin. Most of the texts are written in Latin, appear in Latin. Some like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, obviously that's in like the precursor to Old English. And then you find that when some of these hagiographies, like the biographies of saints were being written of people who lived during my time period, like St. Kentigern, who was the Bishop of Glasgow, and Columba, who's another really famous Christian figure from that time period. Some of these were earlier accounts they were working from were written in a really old form of Gaelic, but that was no longer seen in, when you get to the 10th century, that was really no longer seen as proper. It was seen as really sort of barbaric. And, and so then most after that point, everything was written in Latin, but mostly I'm reading translations. You know, I wasn't trained as a historian. I was trained as an acquisitions editor in New York City. I was a journalism major, communication major. I've just always loved history and always been really fascinated with it. So I've had to really learn as I go along. And yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn some Welsh at this point, which is pretty exciting. That's interesting on the Latin. I guess I, I, it makes sense now that you say that, but I would have never guessed it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People have translated those things. So you can go and find the translations. And then, as you said, scholars have picked apart portions of it, what was original, what was probably added later, those types of things. It's amazing to see how different an interpretation can vary based on who the translator is, is something I've found. And there are some translators who, you know, Rachel Bromwich is a really famous one who I think did a genius translation of a lot of old texts and saw things in a bit of a different way. But we know from some TED Talks that some of these Gaelic words in old Welsh words are really difficult to translate into a modern way of thinking. There's a really great TED Talk on that. And I think that we're probably losing a lot in translation. 
Well, and I think that's the case a lot of times. I mean, the perfect example I always think of is the Bible. When you think of all the different translations that have come out now, depending on the time and who's doing them. So yes, I do think translation, you're going to lose some stuff no matter what it is. It's true. And the other thing is that when we translate, we tend to take things so literally. You know, most of what you see when people start doing really wacky things with things they believe are written in the Bible, it's typically them taking the Bible at its word. But oftentimes, especially in the ancient world, things were more told via parable and they were meant to be the, we know that the Gales and the Britons had a lot of kennings, which are these words or phrases that meant or stood for something completely different. It was almost like a coded language that they used. Swallow would mean something. And someone said, oh, he's, he's an apple tree. It meant that he was from a certain family of nobles. I mean, it was just, it was such a deeply rooted convention that we've now lost to the point that there's this poem called the battle of the trees. And a lot of people really think it's just a silly, nonsensical poem about a bunch of trees going to war against each other. But if you start to study the Kennings or try to piece together what we know, um, you can tell that it seems to be a, a coded memory of a very important ancient battle. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I, I always think that about English, though. I mean, if someone in the future was trying to translate some of the things we say, the idioms, the slang, I mean, it would make no sense at all. Exactly. Exactly. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from your books? What a wonderful question. Um, I, I feel like these books are an invitation to, to remember a time when we lived differently, when people lived a lot closer to, to the elements and treated the natural world very differently. But also in my books, I think that there's just this natural echo of things that happen even today. You know, in this book, The Forgotten Kingdom, there's a lot to do with this idea that war is animate, that it's, there's, I call it sometimes in the book, the beast of war. And I think that we are not so far from that idea even today, this idea of good versus evil and the way that some politicians can bring in light and other ones just can turn the world into complete and total darkness. I think that it's not very different now than it was 1500 years ago in that regard. And so what I hope I guess readers can see is, is the parallels between the time that Langorith was living in and the times that we're living in and the choices that she and her brother made to try to preserve an older way of being and believing they, I think, were some were heroes of this way of being close to the earth and being close to the old gods and trying to care for the people and to protect protect fellow people against the Anglo invasions and and losing their culture. I mean, they were they were sort of gatekeepers of protecting their culture from extinction, and I I don't know that they fully succeeded. And so, what I hope is that these books can resurrect the beautiful world in which they lived and that that we could, you know, hold it up as a mirror to our own world and, and maybe make some important changes. Well, and that's such a shame that they are almost lost to history. I mean, thankfully, you know, you found them and you're resurrecting them, but it's amazing how there can be some very important people and they don't make it through to the history books today. Yeah, and it's in it's interesting in, in the world of Lilacan or Merlin, it was almost like he was loved to death because... He was, if he was a real man, we know Lingorith was real, 
you know, she was married to a historical king and their children descended from them mentioned in various king lists and et cetera. But I guess we cannot prove the existence of her brother in the way that we could come closer to proving her existence. But, but if he was a real man, you know, he lived in such a way that when he died, he was almost deified. And there are, you know, it's not just me. I, maybe I'm focusing more on bringing these historical figures to life, but gosh, think about how many writers over the centuries have been fascinated by the tale of Arthur and Merlin and the round table and who have all put their own spin on it, so to speak. So, and I, I think I, I'm not innocent to putting my own spin on it for sure. You know, there's so much that I have to create when I'm writing a 600 page book based on maybe 10 or 15 potentially historical events. But I think it's really interesting that Merlin was just, he was so beloved that he became this godlike figure. And then of course, we live in an age now where so few people believe in a spirit world or a, world, a realm of gods or angels or anything that touches our own. And so he's just seen as, as an invention of fiction. It is fascinating to me how there will be people like Merlin that just capture imagination for centuries. You know, I mean, that is literally a story that has been told for quite some time now. And you just wonder how it began. You can take somebody like Barack Obama, who is someone I admire so much. And if you were to cast him back into the sixth century mindset and see the way the changes he was able to bring about with some traditional Celtic drama thrown in. They attributed people with supernatural abilities who they admired. And, and the stories just grew and grew. It was one giant game of telephone, essentially, as these storytellers traveled from old fortress to old fortress, hall to hall. You could imagine how somebody like Barack Obama, a thousand years from now, people would say, oh, he didn't exist. No one, no one like that could have existed back then. I guess I just always wonder how it happens with one person and not with another, just the path that is followed. But that's the beauty of history. Yes, that's, it's fascinating. And, you know, we know that oftentimes history is our tales told by the victors. That is a good point. And so that those stories are the ones that move on. Well, I am dying to ask you about being an acquisitions editor in the publishing industry and kind of what you did for that job and then how that impacted you writing your own books. Oh, it was such a beautiful and exciting time in my life. I had just graduated from school and was drifting around bartending on Nantucket and doing things like that. But I knew I wanted to be in the communication world. And I had an internship at FSG for our Strauss Giroux, which is one of the you know more fabulous, smaller, original publishers in the U.S. And that's what really made me fall in love with the book industry. You know, and it was reading manuscripts. And we would have to write reports on these manuscripts to give to the assistants who worked for the editors. And the assistants were giving us the manuscripts that they thought had the least promise just to try to clear out their, what they call the slush pile. But I just was sitting there thinking, I can't believe that that you could do this for a living. And I mentioned it to the assistant who was running the intern program there. And she said, well, you don't really get you don't really get to do it for a living. Like you have no idea how little you get paid to do this job. Right. <laughs> I was really lucky enough to kind of through connections I made in publishing during the internship, eventually found a way into an interview at Random House. And that's where I really got my start was working at Little Random House and Ballantine Books and kind of rose through the lower ranks there and had the chance to 
buy some really beautiful books and learn so much about the publishing industry. And I, what I found I loved the most was finding these stories and helping to bring them to bookshelves. That's really what acquisition editors do, right? Is they, they're seen as gatekeepers, which now has a more of a negative connotation, I think. But but when I think these are highly skilled individuals with, you know, the people I was working with and for amazing, amazing intellects and so well read and such dynamic people who were helping to curate what was going out into the, the literary world. And so every person who was an acquisition acquisitions editor brought with them their own particular tastes that would help shape the list of the whole imprint. And it is such a fascinating apprenticeship style career to have. And I learned to edit from the editors that I worked under until I could edit myself and begin buying my own books. And then eventually I went over to Penguin just before they merged. This was a few years before they merged with Random House and was working at Penguin where I really had a lot more freedom to buy and could buy historical fiction and I could buy some nonfiction titles. And it, it was just... I loved it and I hated leaving it behind, but I, I sort of began to outgrow the, my life in New York. You know, everything felt too cramped and too difficult and I just needed a change of scenery. So I ended up leaving and starting to write. Well, that just sounds like the most fascinating job, just like you said, to, in a positive way, be a gatekeeper, but also just to see what's coming in and see what the trends are and what people are writing about and unearthing stories that haven't been told. I would think that would just be absolutely fabulous. Yes. And especially one of the things I really loved about it was helping to produce the package of the book too. You know, we give input on what we think the cover should look like. Covers, titles, all of those things are things that happen on the desk of the acquisitions editor. And of course, we do a lot of developmental editing with the authors, which was another part of it I really enjoyed is that relationship you have with the manuscript where you really, I think some of the best editors can just sort of slip into the skin and the voice of the author and make line edits that sometimes authors would say to editors, is it okay if I keep this line of dialogue you wrote? (laughs) And yes, the idea is, you know, keep it or change it, but it's a teaching tool. So look at what this line of dialogue does and make it your own or look at it and create something completely different, but following the idea of what this edit is meant to get across. So that was really fun. And it doesn't translate into writing, unfortunately. I think I was I always felt very confident as an editor, but I don't think it makes you a good writer. I don't think that that's assured in any way. So when I started writing, I really felt like I was starting from scratch. And I still think my writing is still something that I'm constantly trying to improve. Well, do you think that even if the writing is not something that came from the editing, that just sort of the whole process, understanding the publishing world, what an acquisitions editor is going to be looking for, some of that helped you at all? I don't know. I would say not as much as you would think. I think it helps you to to understand what happens once that book goes into production or, or once you, to help you find an agent, surely knowing some of the agents in the industry was definitely helpful. But I think all of the really brutal, gory, terrible, horrible work of writing a book happens when the writer is completely alone. And, and that's really, that's the gritty part. You know, that's where you've just got to finish a draft. 
And none of, none of that work in editorial helps when you're trying to finish a draft. If anything, it really hampers me because it's this critic in the back of my head that's saying, you're not, you're not showing enough, you're telling and you're, and it can just, it can drive you to distraction into, into these dead ends where you just feel completely censored by your own inner critic because first drafts are usually terrible and they're never good enough, you know, but you've got to get something on paper. Otherwise you, you can't, you can't get things going. You can't revise and you can't start to improve and see where the weak points are. No, but I get that. You know, as you're writing your first draft, you're thinking, wait a minute, they're going to fix this or they're going to ask for this. And you have to kind of turn all that off and be like, I'm just going to get it down because once I have it all down, then I can begin the process of revising. Yeah, exactly. Or I'm just thinking, uh, you know, I'm my own own worst editor. So I'm just thinking that's a terrible word choice. And I would never (laughs) talk to authors I worked with that way. (laughs) Oh, I was also wondering if the the concept of starting out as an acquisitions editor, seeing a book as a manuscript all the way through to when you're holding the finished book in your hand is kind of a similar feeling to what you're doing now, writing the first draft all the way till when the finished copy arrives to you and you're like, this is my book. I mean, were those sort of similar? Yeah, I think I feel, I was always so proud of all of the books that would land on my desk as we had, you know, those finished copies of, of my author's books. It's such a touching moment when you, when you see that, but I would say it's, it's even more intimate as the author. I'm glad I've experienced it because it becomes your child in a different way. I almost feel like the editor is sort of the, the loving step parent, but and they may really love their child, but ne- they're never going to really, really know what it was like to give birth to that baby. And I think that that's the main difference is that I do feel like I have one human son and now I've got three book babies out in the world and they're all different. And you know, none of them are perfect, but I'm proud of them all. I wanted to hear a little bit about your first book. Yeah. So my first book was really prompted by the loss of my father, which happened in the year of 2006. And I was working in acquisitions editorial in New York City when my dad passed away. And I don't know that in that environment, although I've got to tell you, my my Random House family was, was so incredibly supportive when that happened. I almost get teared up talking about it. I'm sorry. But, but I was really lucky that I had editors and even the publisher. They were so amazing and understanding, but I think I really struggled after losing him. And so leaving New York City and um, going on this journey, which is what is covered in pages of fairy tale, to rediscover a sense of my own wonder in the world. I had become a bit of a skeptic and really leathered in a way from living life in New York City because you do have to sort of armor your heart when you go out in the world. And sometimes when you give someone on the street who's panhandling money, like they'll throw it at your back if it's not all quarters or something and hit you with coins and pelt you with coins in the middle of the day. And it's just, it's a really different kind of place. And I think it, it wasn't really, it wasn't working for me anymore. And I couldn't really drag myself out of this grief And at the same time, there was this woman living in my apartment building who was very whimsical, airy-fairy kind of woman. And she told me that I was surrounded by fairies. And she said that the fairies loved my apartment and that they were always in there. And I lived in this pre-war building, this 500-square-foot room. Oh, it's probably smaller than that. I don't even know. It was super small. (laughs) And 
I thought it was really interesting that this woman in her, you know, early 50s lived in New York City and in this very concrete world and yet had retained or rediscovered this really whimsical belief. And of course, I I didn't believe her that there were fairies in my apartment, but I, I started to think it would be a really neat experiment for someone who is inclined to go out into the world and try and try and see if they could find other people who believed and and see if they could encounter, if people believe in fairies, you know, could I encounter one myself? So that little book really changed the way that I live and the way that I see the world. I had the most incredible adventures. I experienced things, I did experience things in the end that I couldn't necessarily explain. And it really did change the way that I function even to this day. Although I will say I wrote it in 2009. So it's been 10 or 11 years since I went on that journey. And I've since been over to Scotland and Ireland bunches of times, especially Scotland researching the Lost Queen series and have become much more of um, a critical thinker and more of a scholar than I was when I wrote that book. So I do feel like in a way I read, I read that book and I I still, I still love it, but I definitely, I sort of wince at some of the airy fairiness of it in a certain way because, you know, I was, I was 11 years ago and so much has happened in my life since, but it's a beautiful starting off point to sort of look at the beginnings of where we are today with what's left of Celtic belief. And it traces it back by the end to the roots of where fairies came from. And they really are modern memories of ancient gods, ancient Celtic gods. I've always been fascinated with the idea of fairies, so I really look forward to reading that. Oh, good. Well, thank you, and I hope you enjoy it. Weird things happen to people. I'll warn you, Cindy, when you start reading that book, I get a lot of letters still, and people start finding feathers when they're walking around um, on the sidewalk and just weird things. So not bad things. You don't need to be creeped out, but... (laughs) I'll be looking over my shoulder the whole time. People be like, what is going on with her? It sounded very entertaining and interesting. And I love memoirs. So I I look forward to it. Oh, thank you. Now, have you started working on the last book in the trilogy? Or are you just enjoying right now the Forgotten Kingdom heading out into the world? Yeah, it's it's hard to work on that really intense creative process when you're also preparing to send your kid off to kindergarten the Forgotten Kingdom is going out into the world. And so it's a whole different type of energy. One, the creative is so deeply internal. And speaking about the book and and doing Zoom calls and being in front of people and having to put on makeup and clothing is all just a whole different thing. And it's difficult to do the two at once. So yeah, I haven't really started. And the other reason is because book two really was a struggle for me. It took a lot out of me to, to finish this book and to get the story right. At one point I printed out the entire novel and was just moving the chapters around with my hands as, you know, it's just some sort of very bizarre looking, beautiful mind thing going on in my study. And people would kind of just wince when they walked by. But, you know. <laughs> and and it was really, really difficult. I was having to write at night when my son was sleeping and not getting enough sleep. And it was it was painful. So I actually finished just before COVID hit in the US. And thank goodness for that, because then we had just a lot of emotional things happening. And it was would have been very hard to, to do something as frivolous, it feels like, as to write a novel. So I was lucky in the timing, but I've been kind of healing since then. And 
sometimes in my career as an editor, you know, you see these authors who have just become really efficient machines and they still write these really fun and good books, but sometimes you can tell they're just that they're just tired or they're just kind of worn out. And I, I don't ever want to come to the writing page that way. I want to be excited and energized about everything I do. Cause I think that that's what makes, makes it so engaging and exciting to read an author's work is when you feel like they're so invested and I can't get there quite yet with book three. Cause I just feel so beat up from book two. So Well, and I think sometimes, you know, some stories are just harder to get out. You've got the idea, but just trying to get it, like you said, in the correct format, the order, just all of it. And it does take some time to rest. And on top of it, in the middle of a pandemic, it's just hard to focus generally, I think. And so it's nice to have a break, enjoy that this one is now making its way out. And then there's plenty of time to start on the third one. Yeah, so I'll say I've been doing a really neat thing, fun thing on social media. Today was day one, and we were in Edinburgh, and I'm taking readers through my research trip that I took to write The Forgotten Kingdom. And I'll say that it really is starting to energize me as I'm looking back through my photographs and remembering in such a physical way being on the soil in Scotland and being at Edinburgh's Central Central Library. It's making me kind of get the writing bug again. So it may happen sooner rather than later that I'll dive back in. That'll be fun. Is it on Instagram? Yes, it's on Instagram and on Facebook. And it's going to go, it goes now through September 15th. But if people are listening to this later, they can go back through and take their own little virtual journey. I have a hashtag I'm using called, I think it's Travel Scotland with Signy that, you know, readers could find that on Instagram and go on the journey, you know, whenever they pick up the book. Well, I have loved, loved, loved talking with you. And before we wrap up, I would love for you to tell me about a book or two that you've read recently that you liked. So we were talking a lot about how after I finished book two, I was in this period of just like collapse and healing in a way. And I found my way to the first in a really epic trilogy by Patrick Rothfuss called The Name of the Wind. And it was the perfect book for me to read. It's a fantasy novel. And the main character is a man named Quoth in this fantastical world that feels very much like a human world that could have been a long time ago, except for that there's some sorts of ominous demony types of creatures and all of these other fun, almost fairy-like beings and some fun things. But his storytelling is absolutely beautiful. And he's not hurried, which was nice and frustrating. You know, he really takes his time in telling a story. And I needed that. I needed just a story to just fall into and roll around in and get lost in. And so The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, that, that's what really got me hooked this summer. And now I'm reading the second in the series. It came out a couple of years ago. And of course, all of his readers are, are saying, you know, when's the third one going to come out? And these, I mean, the amount of world building that he has to do, it just, it boggles my mind. I, I think that we should give Patrick Rothfuss a break. <laughs> well, I think everybody deserves a break at the moment. But well, thank you again, Signe. I just absolutely love talking with you and I really appreciate your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you, Cindy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Signe's book can be purchased at Murder By The Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. 
Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.